Welcome back to the AEC Disruptors Podcast, your platform to help push the AEC industry forward. I'm your host, Christopher Dell, and joining me today is my co-host, Jackson Sinsat. What's going on, Jackson? Nothing much, Chris. Just another week. Um, it's getting hotter and hotter here in Texas, um, but, you know, we're making it through. How about you? Glad to hear that. Here in Hotlanta, we got to watch our uh, Atlanta Hawks win game seven yesterday, moving on to the uh, the conference finals. So all good I- in the ATL. There's there's a lot of sportcasters right now that are eating crow about Trey Young because um, you know Luca's never won a playoff series, and here's Trey Young in the Eastern Conference Finals. How about that? Oh yeah, man, that uh, that makes that trade seem so much better. So we'll see long term. <laughs> we'll see long term. But <laughs> on uh, on this episode, we talked to a good friend of mine. Actually, we worked together. Um, Josh Cruz, he's the regional healthcare practice leader at Nelson Worldwide, and he's a healthcare architect. He went to Georgia Tech at one point. He went to Florida. He's uh, very in, involved with research. He is. Uh, he practices this idea of evidence-based design, which we talk about. And you know, it was a good talk. We talked about how, at least from his perspective, healthcare design is evolving. Uh, up to now and post-pandemic, how the design, the planning phase, the, uh, the relationship with the contractor, even how we facilitate and use uh, big boxes to, to house a lot of these new projects. What did you think of our conversation with Josh? Uh, I thought it was very educational, especially for me. Um, you know, early on in the episode, we had to set the table a little bit and define some uh, words for me coming from the contractor perspective. Um, I like but, that part. Yeah, Josh is definitely a, a super sharp guy. Um, you know, I I personally learned a lot from that episode, and I really liked the conversation that we had around the designer contractor relationship. And hearing it from his perspective and hearing some of the things that they're putting into practice right now, it's, it's really encouraging for me, you know, coming from the contractor perspective to hear um, about, you know, them getting a seat at the table more early on in the projects. Um, So yeah, it was an excellent conversation. I like that part. And we talk a little bit about letting the expert be the expert and, you know, small little uh, tidbits on how maybe we can make our industry a little more efficient. But overall, it was a great talk. Uh, I always enjoy listening to Josh and I hope you get to listen to it. Enjoy and check back for more. On today's episode of the AEC Disruptors, we have a good friend of mine, Josh Cruz, Regional Healthcare Practice Leader at Nelson Worldwide. How's it going, man? Good. How are you? Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. I'm glad we were finally able to do this. We've tried this a few times, and now, now is the day. Um, so before we talk, you know, um, we've worked together. I know a little bit about your background, but why don't you set the stage? Tell us a little bit about uh, you know, who you are, what's your background, and it can also help lead into um, here, we're going to talk about this idea of healthcare design, how it's evolving. And uh, I think that background helps set the stage. Sure. So um, 
I've been a healthcare architect, practicing healthcare architect for almost 15 years now. Um, started my career early on at Gresham Smith and Partners as, a, as an intern, right? Learned a lot of things about how buildings come together and about how healthcare design happens. Uh, connected with there at the time, uh, Sheila Bosch was their director of research and she kind of led me uh, to Georgia Tech in the Simtegrate Design Lab there with Craig Zimmering and Jennifer DuBose, uh, that wonderful program there that specializes in evidence-based design. And I just, I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the practice, the way it the way it's evolved, the way it's come to be, um, and the practical implications of that, how you practically apply evidence-based design to uh, healthcare design and architecture in general. Um, so that that's kind of where my career springboarded into the practice of healthcare architecture, and it spanned from uh, medical office buildings, physician practice design, all the way to ground-up high-rise hospitals. So I've kind of run the gamut of a few projects um, that, that have a broad, broad range. Uh, today, I am you know, regional practice leader uh, for Nelson in the Southeast. So from Charlotte to Miami, uh, all projects that are medical office buildings, hospitals, um, interior renovations, um, and even a couple big box renovations. We'll talk about that a little bit later too. It's an exciting new evolution in healthcare design. So I uh, kind of run the gamut here, man, of a lot of different things uh, that we practice in. Um, I think the first time I met you uh, was uh, when we worked at CDH and you were finishing up the Paulding Hospital and and didn't Paulding? I mean, there was some some special things about that hospital, was there not? Yeah, th there definitely was a lot of special things about that hospital and the way that project e evolved over time. Even um, Wellstar Paulding Hospitals, it's a big hospital in a rural area at, just outside of Metro Atlanta. Um, and again, Georgia Tech was involved in that. The Simtegrate Design Lab was involved in that. The Center for Health Design. So a lot of research went into that. Uh, I guess kind of the the gold star that 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 hospital was predicated on was responsible design, appropriateness and stewardship. Um, we did a lot of great things, a lot of organizational things that that moved that organization into a, a standard of care um, that, that improved the ability to provide care to that, that community. Um, and it was all about being appropriate with design and about being good stewards of the budget and aligning that. We're gonna talk about that in target value design. So I, I think that's you know a great springboard into this conversation, that project. Um, you know, I, I wish I could take credit for it, man, but there was a great team there, you know, CDH at Mary Lindemann, Bill Chadwick and those guys, you know, leading the effort. Um, I started as a lowly intern with, on that project, but by the end of it was, you know, assistant project manager because it, it spanned such a, a long, uh, a long portion of my career. Um, so yeah, I, you know, becoming growing up in a project like that that's just steeped in evidence-based design uh you learn all the tricks of the trade you learn how the language speaks um great planners on that health facilities partners with georgianne burns you know she was able to just guide us along the way and really shape the knowledge creation that happened during that project too i think that's why i was interested to talk with you um obviously we're, we're good friends here and but i I approach business in general from the strategy perspective. And I think there's something to be said when we're designing with evidence-based design in mind, uh, it kind of has more of that strategy feel to it. it. It feels like we're being more systematic in our approach of what we add or what we do. And uh, at least that's that resonates with me. That's kind of the way I think. Could we take a time out here and could you define evidence-based design for um, the <laughs> for contractor people that folk don't know. <laughs> who don't know sure, what that is? Sure, sure. So um, evidence-based design. Jackson. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Jackson. I appreciate it, man. Uh, keep us true. Um, 
So evidence-based design is first and foremost a process of decision making, and it's based on credible research and evidence. So um, what I the soapbox that I like to stand on is evidence-based design is a process, not a series of outcomes. Uh, unfortunately, there is no silver bullet, right? That you can, if you use evidence-based design, you're going to have more X, or if you use evidence-based design, you'll end up with more Y. Those variables are indicative of the process itself. Now, there may be a large proportion of projects that end up with the more X variable, natural light, larger windows, right? They may lead that way. And I think you're going to find that 100% of the time that's the case for natural light. But you still have to work the process because by definition, evidence-based design, EBD, is a process. Uh, and that process starts at the very beginning by involving all stakeholders and defining a series of guiding principles that really help uh, structure the project. And then the part that usually gets missed is setting the hypothesis of the project. What we think is going to happen if we establish these guiding principles, here's the outcomes we think we're going to get, and then testing that along the way, and then in the end, publishing and sharing your results. Um, architects, we're really good at holding tight to what our strategies are, and, and uh, we're really good at being secretive about behind the curtain. But you know, in the end, if we publish that, we grow that evidence base, uh, and that elevates the practice altogether. That was a great definition <laughs> and not to um, hi hijack this, but could you see predictive analytics playing a role in evidence-based design? I do. I, I think that that setting the hypothesis stage gets missed uh, quite a bit on uh, EBD projects. Um, and it's it's the piece that's the research arm that's usually outside of the architect scope. So whether it's a third party with the with the design lab or uh, an institute like, like um, Texas A&M or Clemson that comes in and does research or even the research I'll say arm. Texas A&M to him. Sorry. Love <laughs> that. <laughs> Sore subject. Uh, we'll talk college no, football he, later. That's he, a whole he nother loves, conversation. He loves Texas A&M. That's, that's, that's my old spot. <laughs> so uh, Clemson also has a program. Uh, you know, uh, David Allison, those guys have, have great research that gets embodied into these types of projects. So I do think that predictive analytics could play a role in that. And I do think that that would help the connect connect the architect to the research entity, because that's that's usually the weakest connection on an EBD project is connecting back to the research and then conducting research. So if you're using predictive analytics, I think your, your supposed hypothesis could intentionally be measured even better. Jackson is a, uh, he loves to talk about Texas A&M anytime he has. So you've, you've opened Sorry. the door. Good job. Yeah, I, I, thought I, had I thought I had reached my quota when we had the A&M <laughs> professor on, but I, you just served it up on a silver platter. I'm just glad to hear that, you know, A&M is contributing to the industry like they always have. So <laughs> nice. nice. <laughs> Are you still a Gator fan, Josh? Uh, I know. No, I'm not a Gator fan. I am a Gator. Uh, so I'm alumni <laughs> of the University of Florida. Um, and that, uh, yes, I am a Gator uh, who has a great um, research program in healthcare design, by the way. Sheila Bosch used to be research director at Gresham Smith. She is now a PhD professor at um, at University of Florida. So, it, I mean, it's all comes full circle, right? That's uh, healthcare design is such a, a small, intimate industry. We all know each other and work with each other regularly. Um, so yeah, it's the same, same group of folks. Texas Tech also has a great program too. So uh, and more and more universities are now catching on to this and, and uh, highlighting it as a skill set that architects could graduate um, into a profession in healthcare design. So it's, it's, it's exciting to see.
for today, we're kind of talking about this idea. We sort of set the stage um, of, you know, from your perspective, how is healthcare design evolving, maybe even through your career and then beyond as we enter into this post-pandemic world, uh, I would suspect that there'll be various things, especially in healthcare, there are going to be different things that we have to think about, maybe we didn't think about before. Um, when we started to set this talk, you kind of told us about three different phases, and we talked about, uh, you know, how is the planning of design changing, how is the relationship with the contractor changing, and then how are we facilitating that? So in terms of planning, I want to touch on uh, when we spoke, you kept talking about this idea of functional scenarios. And I'll be honest, I don't know what it is. And so I kind of want you to, you know, how using that, like how is healthcare design changing and uh, where do you see the focus going moving forward? Sure. So uh, functional scenarios is a, is a great topic. And I want to take a step back, just high level. It's a part of designing for flexibility. Um, and a lot of this research actually came out of Georgia Tech, the Simtegrate Design Lab on flexibility. Um, and the, the thing we're learning about flexibility and the thing that's been, been documented several times is it's not an innate characteristic of a built environment. Uh, a, a built environment cannot be uh, indeterminately flexible. Uh, there has to be a defined start state and a defined in state. Um, so it, flexibility, when we're talking about it, uh, has to have a definition of what it starts with and what it ends with. And there may be a series of unknown scenarios in between. So in order to design for flexibility, and this is, it, it, we, and I would ashamedly haven't done this in a large part of my career, but more recently and since the pandemic, this is one of those things that keeps coming up over and over on every project is we're designing in more flexibility. Well, we, that, that's one of those words that scares me because I don't, that doesn't mean that we just plan for the unknown and we're taking a guess at it. We have to define what we're planning for in the future. And so we set what's called a series of functional scenarios. We're designing for scenario A today, you know, a five-year and a 10-year plan. And what could that, those spaces flex to what could they adapt to to become um, and we run through a matrix man there's three different types of flexibilities across five different scales and we define what this that what this built thing needs to be in the end um, and determine flexibility and the way we do that is through a series of functional scenarios so it's really just a definition of what the space functions as today and what we're planning to funk the space to function as in the future uh, so once those that functional scenario gets defined then we can plan and in, inform the planning that way um, one of the things that I had never planned for before last year was a global pandemic, right? Uh, I had never planned for that as part of a functional scenario. Uh, and now hospitals and health systems are asking us, hey, what happens if, if this happens again? How can we be prepared, right? Where are our drive-through clinics? Where are our testing sites? Where are our vaccination sites, uh, mass vaccination sites? Can other other spaces flex like the World Congress Center? Can they flex to be able to mm -hmm. administer vaccines? Do we need to have conference space that can do that? That is that is a functional scenario of a conference space as a vaccination site. We've never seen that before, but that is indeed one of the projects we're planning right now is a, it's a health system. They've got a conference space, but they want to be sure they can get people in and out uh, in a singular flow so that, that it could 
could become a vaccination site in the future should we need it again. Um, that type of flexibility um, and that type of functional scenario I had not seen before 2020. Um, I don't think many of us had planned uh, uh, for those things before. So now we're seeing health systems become aware of those. We had planned for surge events, um, but not to the scale uh, that, that we saw in 2020. Um, we had planned for excuse me, we have planned for surge events uh, in off-site conditions and campuses that could be retrofit or could be made uh, to be healthcare delivery spaces, but nothing to the scale that we saw. The, uh, it's ironic, I don't know if it's ironic or not, but Jackson and I, one of our first episodes we did together, I guess it was right before the pandemic started, was on the 10-day hospital. And, you know, we talked about like, oh, that could never happen here. We would never, you know, there's too much red tape. There's too much bureaucracy to, to do. And then we fast forward now. And then it's interesting to look back. Um, this idea of functional scenarios, I would think really could apply to, to any type of design because Absolutely. any project we do should have multiple use cases after the fact. So like we've had sustainable um, guest on. And for us to build a sustainable future, I think that just needs to be a foundational thing that we, we think about. Do you think that this pandemic is going to have such a great impact that it's going to change functional design, not only in hospitals, urgent cares, um, things like that, but also in places like schools, restaurants, um, you know, hotels? You know, that's a great question. Uh, and I know there are folks on each side of that, and I'm, I'm not sure I've landed on a particular side of that argument just yet. I think it has forever changed the way we think about space design. I think it has forever changed the way we think about workplace, retail, uh, and, uh, and absolutely rethink we're now rethinking healthcare, um, the way people are gathered, the way we, we ask people to wait, um, you know, it, it, in a in an evidence-based process, waiting is waste, right? So now, now that has really come to the forefront because we're asking them to wait in what could be a potentially dangerous situation. Um, mm -hmm. So how how is waiting reduced even more so? Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I do think it it is going to change the way we in, inhabit space, the way we occupy space, the way we think about our social distancing. Um, I think it does change that. Um, I'm interested to see over time how much that ebbs and flows. Um, and I think it could be regional, right? I think it could be, definitely could be regional. We've, we've definitely seen that in Georgia, that spaces in the more urban and metro areas, uh, it, it's impacting at a greater scale than it is in rural Georgia. So I, I do think that that's going to play a role in it as well. You know, because I, um, it's the idea of waiting. I went to the dentist, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago because I, chipped my tooth and th the whole experience was completely different, but actually kind of nice. I mean, I, I sat in the car until it was time for me to go inside. They came to me. I signed what I needed to do. I went straight into a room and, you know, part of me kind of just liked, I mean, if I'm gonna have to wait, I'd rather just wait in my car, the comfort of my own space. You know, I wonder how many places are going to start to reconsider the amount of space that I need, like these small, like MOBs. I don't need a waiting room. You could wait in your car if it's a standalone building. Uh, or do we do we think that people are going to almost totally swing back? Pendulum's going to swing back all the way to the other side because it's like, you know what? I hated that so much. We're going back to the way it was. Yeah, I, I think you're going to see a little bit of both. Um, there's definitely a population that enjoys um, 
enjoys the insulation and protection and safety. And then there's a large portion of the population um, where a doctor's visit is the social interaction of the week. Um, yeah, right? that, that's, that's the point. happening thing. And so we we talk about when we design waiting areas, you know, sociofugal versus sociopedal. Sociopedal in, encourages interaction, and it has a lot to do with the practice type and and the population that's coming in. And some folks will show up an hour before their appointment just to get that social interaction with people who are going through the same thing they are. It's almost like a behavioral health, it's their counseling session for the week to go to the doctor's office and visit with people um, who, who, are, who are battling some of the same things they are. Uh, so I, I think that, I don't know, man, I think that we're still gonna have to wait and see how that happens. But I, I to Jackson's point, it's going to be far more intentional now than it ever has been. That we're gonna have to ask the question, the space is gonna have to be designed intentionally for that functional scenario. Um, so yeah, I, I agree, Jackson, good point. So when, you know, if we were thinking a very simple example of functional scenario outside of a pandemic, I mean, what are other things that we're considering? I mean, so if we're laying out a space and I guess a, a really cheesy example would be like if I had a, a big box and I needed to think through in 15 years, I might need four boxes inside this. So where do I place structure so I can accommodate for that? I mean, is that, you know, in a rudimentary way, what we're really doing in terms of functional scenarios? Like, what, you know, what may it need to be in 10 years and 15 years? Yeah, so uh, some of those functional functional scenarios include growth, and that's what you're talking about, right? That's growth over time. Uh, that's definitely something that we've always considered for years. That is a functional scenario, but I think we're talking more about change in use, change in dynamic. Um, uh, a few years back, I want to say about two years ago, we designed the Cognitive Empowerment Program for Emory Brain Health, um, and it's a program that doesn't exist anywhere else in the country by any other health system, right? Uh, it's a day program for those diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment. Um, and the, the whole idea, the concept was that this was to be a living laboratory for these folks who've been diagnosed with MCI to come in, receive care, receive day program. At the time, uh, there was no evidence-based uh, pharmaceutical, no evidence-based medicine that would would help with the disease, uh, with the diagnosis. Uh, and there was there's no evidence-based therapies that would help as well. So everything was a trial. Uh, so you're designing a space that you don't know if it's going to work for any of it. Um, and that's what made it interesting. That's what made it intriguing. Uh, so we designed spaces for researchers to be next to uh, areas where the patients would come in and would go through these therapies. What we found out was that we designed a student space, which is your, your typical open ceiling, desk, collaborative student you know, workshop area next to what would be a, a space for yoga or gym or Tai Chi or dancing to try these there so that students could observe all these were happening what we found out was they opened the doors and the spaces got that there was no delineate delineation in space at all so you've got acoustic problems in one area you've got your space problems in another area uh, and it's just it's a functional scenario that we didn't oh by the way they might not stay because we drew the lines they might want more social interaction than we planned for uh so then the space needed to evolve and to adapt and we address we brought in the acoustician and get some of those things addressed um you know, we designed with movable furniture and movable partitions so we can move things around so that we can create and shape the space that they need. So that's a functional scenario that we didn't plan for that showed up. Um, but because we used flexible parts and pieces and a kit of parts, uh, we we're able to adapt for it. 
and we're still adapting seems, for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> flexibility seems to be important for just in general, all design. Right. Um, I mean, even, you know, when we talk, I mean, we're experiencing this now. We all work from home. And now there's this idea of, okay, well, what is it going to look like when we go back? And what does the office need to look like? And, you know, that, that, that level of design, you have to be able to consider, like, how can this space be flexible? We see the same thing in education. We all think differently. Absolutely. Some of us want our own little pods. Some of us want a, a huge room for everyone to join. Um, so with this idea of being flexible, functional scenarios, do you think that is like heavily uh, dependent on evidence-based design, like having more, not just intuition, but fact that we, in research? I mean, uh, the business side of me wants to answer absolutely yes, and you should always call an expert in evidence-based design to help you with that. Uh, I mean, that's, of course, that's what I do all day, every day. So yes, absolutely, call me. We'll get it figured out. But um, no, overall in the industry, I, I think absolutely. I think that... Um, I think innovation and creativity are going to be steeped in research. Uh, I think it's one of those things where, where folks are going to want to read about it. They're going to want to hear about it. They're going to want to, um, I think uh, the, there's a difference between the leading edge and the bleeding edge. I, I think we're going to see folks who are on the bleeding edge, just like they always have been. Uh, and companies are going to try to push that. And, and I think that's a great thing. And that's where innovation strives. But I think we're going to see a lot more folks move to that leading edge quickly um, because it's going to help us retain talent and retain employees. And, and I, I think that that's going to have to happen. The AEC Disruptors podcast is brought to you by Applied Software. With solutions for the modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and champion innovation with real-world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for the AEC, MEP, and manufacturing has a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit asti.com and let them know we sent you. Yeah, the uh, the research innovation, they definitely seem to be, uh, they're always joined together. I mean, even at Applied, as we're trying to build this innovate, innovative culture, yeah. there's that research component that if you don't have it, you know, we all have great ideas, but we have to be able to consistently look out what's going on in our industries, understand what can or can't happen. Um, and so it is pretty critical. So I can see it kind of, it may even change the profession in general because we, we recognize there's more functional scenarios we need to account for. We need Absolutely. to rely more on research. Um, and firms, organizations may change. I mean, there may be whole research departments to a lot of architecture firms that, you know, that's all they do is R and D. Um, who knows? Maybe in my future firm, that's how it'll go. Uh, so, um, okay. So we, we've, we've started to plan out the space. We're kind of designing the space and the, you know, that we, we evolve a little bit in terms of our relationship with the contractor. So, you know, the reason I have Jackson as one of my, as my co-host is we bring this separate perspective and, uh, you know, it seems like for a lot of these projects, those conversations are happening a little sooner, hopefully not as adversarial. Um, from your perspective, how are we evolving now in terms of how do you work with the contractor and how has that relationship evolved and maybe will evolve uh, post-pandemic? 
Um, we are seeing a heightened, heightened presence of general contractors, subcontractors, even in our early preliminary design, uh, definitely by the schematic design phase. Um, I know that we've got a, a couple projects that we call integrated project delivery, but it's more IPD light. The contracts aren't structured that way, but that's the way we're performing. The contractor has been involved from schematic design. Pricing is happening um, on a check set basis, right? Not even on a phase. No, we're not even waiting till the end of a phase. We're pricing check sets along the way. Um, that That's happening continual. Um, I've got one project that we we actually call it uh, uh, build design because a, a lot of times the contractor is ahead of us on what we're what we're trying to achieve and we're we're bringing to the table ideas and concepts and he's constructing it as we're building it and it's a uh, it's one of those that it's uh, it, we're hand in hand working with the client and working with the contractor more more so today than I ever have in my career. We've, we've had great contractors that have always practiced that way. Um, and we've had good architects that have always done the same thing. So um, now we're just seeing it more and more. One of the tools that that we're using, and then it seems to be a, a I don't want to say a buzzword, but it keeps coming up is target value design. Um, and that's where you simply just set a budget uh, early on in the process. And, it, and then each, uh, we use a tool called project budget by discipline. Um, and you you just set the budget per discipline uh, for the project. That way, you know you're not stripping out lighting to pay for carpeting or cutting out carpeting to pay for the mechanical system. We know where those uh, budgets are going to align early on in the process, and we can give that to uh, MEP consultants and engineers and structural consultants and engineers. We know what systems are going to cost um, while we're designing instead of after we've designed, we send it to them, we get pricing back, we reevaluate and design some more. It it takes the iterative a little bit of the iterative process out and streamlines it uh, quite a bit for us, and we appreciate it so much having that expertise on the front end. Yeah, I'm sure the owner really appreciates that as well. Uh, well, <clears throat> it's funny because more and more owners, that is their expectation now. It's not that they appreciate it and they're grateful for it. It's just that, hey, that's the way this project is going to go. We're going to be collaborative. Mm -hmm. We're going to be open book. The budget's on the table. Here's here's how much stuff costs from day one. Um, and here's and the owner's expectations are that we work that way and we collaborate that way. They're getting more sophisticated in what they're absolutely wanting. And it takes just one architect to and, and a contractor to perform a certain way, spoil that owner, and then it becomes the, the standard for what we expect. Yeah, I love nothing more than being the owner's easy button, right? That that they call us or they call the contractor. We get together, uh, and we bring you know we bring it an opportunity that we found on the job site or an opportunity we found in the documents. You know, some people call them problems. We just we call them opportunities, um, and we just and we show three solutions, right? Here's here's solution one, two, and three, and here's what they cost, and here's how it differs from what we thought last week. Um, and you know, Mr. Owner, you get to pick one. Mrs. Owner, you get to pick two, and we move on. Right. Let's let's figure out, you know, how the project moves forward. Uh, and I think it streamlines the process so much, so much better. Um, I haven't we haven't had really any of those adversarial or controversial relationships with contractors um, in a long time. I mean, it's just not something you find in healthcare because healthcare is so small. I mean, it's uh, it's again, it's an intimate industry. You know, everybody, uh, you know, all the contractors. And I think that um, owners realize they're going to get value out of a relationship between a GC and an architect. That value uh, it, that definitely brings value to the project. I know we've already kind of touched on it a little bit, but in your opinion, yeah. from your perspective, what do you think the ideal um, contractor designer relationship looks like? Um, you know, I I describe this um, 
this relationship in many ways and many uh, many factions. But at the end of the day, there's going to be hiccups on every project, right? There's going to be technical hiccups um, along the way, and we solve technical problems all day long. The contractor solves technical problems all day long. What we can't have is relational projects, relational problems on a project where trust is lost. Uh, you just you feel like somebody's trying to get one over on you. Um, so for me, the ideal relationship, you ready, ready for this is going to sum it up, is that on that tough Thursday afternoon after we found something out, um, the, the contractor is the one I want to help solve the problem with me, and then we go to happy hour afterwards. That's the ideal relationship. We solve the problem, we maintain our relationship, and we compartmentalize that technical piece um, without blame or pointing fingers, and we solve the problem, and we move on with our relationship. Yeah. That's ideal. In <laughs> my experience, it would happen on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> There you go. There you go. Uh, no, I, I will tell you, there's a, um, you know, we are progressing in our relationships with general contractors and with subcontractors, um, our interior designers have a unique perspective, even with millwork and millwork subs. Um, we do a lot of custom millwork and millwork design, and we have found it very helpful uh, recently on a few projects uh, to just simply have an on-site meeting with the, the fabricator, right? To, to show a document that gets intent and then have a, a conversation and walk through it uh, with the general contractor and with the sub on site together, looking through things, solving the problem, showing intent, discussing how connections work. Um, I can detail it. I, I mean, I can draw a thing, four pages of details, um, and it might not match the shop drawings. It might need to get done a different way. And so what we like to do is, is we like to be conductors of the expertise. You get the expert who's, who's that's their lane, that's their bread and butter, and you bring them to the table at the right time to get the right input and do it the right way. Um, and in that level of communication, I, I think is important. I, I was going to say, I like that a lot because, um, you know, we would just have meetings with the GC and the meet the GC would have meetings with the architect. We'd never be at the table at the same time. So mm -hmm. thus, you know, there's lines of communications, you would communication that you would have to go through just to get the answers that you really wanted. So I think that, you know, having a set weekly meeting with all of the stakeholders, owner included, that way you can get like a true picture of the project. There's true, like there's full transparency. Um, I think that goes a long way towards not only a successful project, but building great relationships for projects going forward. So what do you think, in, in this post-pandemic world, which I like, you know, we say it's post-pandemic, who knows when that actually happens, we're, we're still in it. Um, yeah. Whether it's from the design perspective or even the relationship with the contractor, can you pinpoint maybe one major thing you think is going to change in terms of how you do your job on a day-to-day? -day? Well, that's a, that's a great question. One major thing that's, that's going to change. Um, I, I think is collaboration. I think that we've all learned uh, in the past year, year and a half, that we can do heads down work at our homes and we can do heads down work um, uh, here at our desks uh, in our home offices, as you guys are too. Um, it's that collaboration piece that it, it's going to become intentional. When we get together with people on a job site or in a meeting room, the collaboration is going to be intentional. It's not going to be a byproduct just because we were in the office together, we had collaboration. I think uh, the biggest change, again, is going to be that um, 
there there will be an increased level of collaboration because there has to be. Um, but I think it's going to be uh, the intentionality of that will be heightened. I would say during this period of time, I mean, as tough as it's been for everyone, you've also seen what amazing things could happen when you had a bunch of people come together and just put their mind towards, we're going to accomplish yeah. this thing, you know, whatever it is. And there has been some nice, nice aspects to it. So, okay. So now, you know, we planned out the design. We talked a little bit about functional scenarios are really going to maybe further drive um, how we design this idea of flexibility. We talk about how uh, we're trying to get more towards target value design. So we don't have to, you know, utter those terrible words of value engineering uh, later on. Um, you know, that, that always bothered me. Like we would design buildings with the intention of value engineering them later, uh, which just is such a waste of time. And we could talk forever about how our industry could be more efficient. Um, but so the last thing is, okay, how are we, yeah. how do you see us facilitating the design differently over the last, you know, so many years, even if throughout your career moving forward, you sort of mentioned big box, you know, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I think we're seeing an evolution uh, in building typology and building usage. Uh, healthcare systems are, are making moves because it is, it's more expensive to deliver care on a hospital campus than it is on an outpatient campus. Uh, so hospitals are pushing outpatient services to outpatient campuses where it's more appropriate, uh, being better stewards of folks' money, being better stewards of the industry's money um, to deliver that care off campus in a less acute setting. So uh, hospitals are, are doing that. We're also seeing uh, globalization and decentralization happening at the same time to where you have health systems acquiring more hospitals. They're acquiring more existing facilities. Um, and then the decentralization part is that is happening in rural areas, um, especially here in Georgia. Well, we just heard of several um, I've heard of Piedmont's purchase of four other hospital systems, right? So they have hospitals now that are outside of the metro area. So they're decentralizing their footprint. Uh, they're spreading that out across the states, um, but they're very intentional about their location. Um, so that globalization is happening and it's decentralizing at the same time. So um, it's going to require a greater level of service and a larger level of uh, adaptability in professional services to address those kinds of things. So we're seeing that. And then uh, the, the other piece you talked about um, it's a little bit of a retrofit of suburbia, right? These big box stores, these malls, uh, retail took a huge hit last year. Um, so a, a lot of retail stores are now transitioning into other space types, uh, serving other markets. Um, one of our largest projects right now is the Emory Health System um, is putting all of its shared administrative resources in one space. And it's it's an old mall, right? So it's an old Sears store, an old Kohl's store. Um, it's a lot of square footage and it's perfect for shared administrative spaces. It increases collaboration. It brings them from, I think they're in six different locations all over the city, bringing them under one roof. So it's exciting for them because they get to see people that they've only emailed, their, they've worked with their entire their entire careers at Emory. Uh, they're going to be sitting next to them or sitting across the hall from them, down the hall from them. So uh, allowing that to happen. We're seeing that also with healthcare spaces. Um, 
Uh, there's a project in Nashville, 100 Oaks, where Vanderbilt did the same thing. It connected retail and clinical spaces in one location. We're seeing that all over the country. Um, we just did an RFP down in South Florida uh, for an old Toys R Us store, right? They're they're retrofitting Toys R Us to have a 22,000 square foot clinic inside of a, an old Toys R Us. So we're seeing these dark shells uh, come to life again, but it, they're coming to life with different uses. They're coming to life with healthcare spaces, whether that's clinical or administrative um, workplace design. Uh, we're, we're just seeing it happen across the board, which is exciting, right? Uh, because all of these, it's perfect for sustainability. These spaces already exist. We're not adding to the building stock or pulling any additional in energies that aren't needed. Um, so it, those are two or three things we're seeing kind of happen across um, across the country from the Northeast uh, all the way down to Miami. We're seeing, we're seeing a lot of those things on this side. As a 90s kid, the idea of an empty Toys R Us just makes me sad. It hurts. It hurts. <laughs> <laughs> makes it so sad. Well, um, I think it's been interesting because again, we see one, I mean, I, I always knew you were heavily in focus on the, the research, the evidence-based side. Um, but it's interesting to get the perspective of, you know, how you've seen things change this point, how we see a move forward and for what it kind of sounds like, and maybe it's just maybe where you are, uh, we're already kind of, we're doing those things. We're already kind of using functional uh, scenarios. We're kind of already dealing with a contractor. We're already retrofitting suburbia, uh, but now maybe post pandemic, it opens our eyes to, okay, we never saw that coming. What other things do we not see coming and planning for that? And so maybe it does, cause I'm sure there was a period of time where we thought that could never happen. Um, there may be somebody that thought about what happens if the whole entire world had a problem. And then somebody said, yeah, that's never going to happen. Um, or if it does healthcare design is probably the last thing we need to worry about. Or if um, it does, we're not going to pay for it right now. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a good point. You know, we're, we have to, and so that maybe as a wrap up, how do you balance, we tie all this in, how do we balance this idea of designing for the future, functional scenarios, yet managing to a today budget? And are there funds? Are we having to think through stuff um, that's ultimately going to maybe never pay out a direct return on investment? You know, that is a, um, a great wrap-up question. And I, I talk about this quite often in the first time we meet clients or the first time um, we're interviewing employees even. Uh, we talk about this concept of stewardship, uh, which to me is an ethical responsibility of taking care of someone else's resources, whether that's whether that's your client's time, money, and budget, uh, whether that's your employee's time or budget, or uh, whether that's your, your company's time that you're spending or your company's dollar that you're spending to, to get work. We talk about stewardship um, in a broader sense as an ethical responsibility, and I think it ties directly to that. I think that's if we're being good stewards of, uh, I mean, good stewards of the earth, good stewards of our environmental resources, good stewards of our energy, um, then I think all of that's how we balance that conversation where, yes, we have functional scenarios that we're planning for in the future. These things may may include exorbitant amount of costs on the on the front end, but let's talk about it. Let's bring it to the forefront. Let's, let's run through an exercise, see what it looks like, um, and then we all can decide together of how we steward those resources. Um, and I think if everyone approaches it from the stewardship, um, almost a servant leadership kind of perspective, uh, then then we're more suited to solve those problems up front. Uh, and if we don't, and, and 
choosing not to solve a particular functional scenario is a choice. Um, and we can, Jackson, we, we do that all the time. We say, hey, we could plan for this functional scenario. Um, the chances of us having an earthquake in this region are pretty slim. So we don't have those kinds of resources in place. Um, you know, and then there are other areas where we over-design intentionally because we want to have an increased safety factor, right? So it's being a, I, I think it all goes back to that stewardship, you know, being a good steward of the resources that you have on hand at the time. And that's a broad sense uh, that goes from money, time, to resources, to energy. Um, so Chris, I, I think that's a, that's a loaded question and a, a full one, but, but stewardship is something we talk about a lot. And I think it would cover, cover that quite a bit. That was a great answer. I've, Good way to end it. Yeah, I have not thought about it from that perspective. I mean, I've never been an architect, but if I was an architect, I'd come at it with that attitude. That was that was great. Well, Josh, I appreciate you joining us. I know we it took us a while to get this scheduled, but it's oh, been a good one. Guys. Yeah, thank you. It's been fun making me think. Thanks for listening to the AEC Disruptors podcast. Enjoy this episode. Leave us a rating or review while sharing with your friends and coworkers. I'd love to hear from you. Send me a LinkedIn request or follow our LinkedIn page and let me know if there's a topic you'd like to hear. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The AEC Disruptors is directed by Christopher Riddell, produced by Todd Wyant, edited by Eric Daniel, and co-hosted by Jackson Sensat. The AEC Disruptors is an applied software production, copyright applied software 2021.